Hey, good morning. If you didn't recognize this young man over here, his name's Eloy, and uh, he was filling in for John. He's on a well-deserved vacation, and so I really appreciate him filling in. He's also on our staff. I get the privilege of working with him, and he's one of those guys that has multiple talents, which, which I wish I had more than one, um, but a great guy, and I really appreciate the worship team coming together and leading us this morning. Plus, he just got over a cold. <laughs> I was like, wow. So anyways, we are in Matthew chapter 5. We've been in a series called the Sermon on the Mount. Tough series because it is tough statements that challenge us to our core. And this morning, we're going to finish up chapter 5. The Sermon on the Mount goes from chapter 5 all the way to the end of chapter 7. But after today, I'm going to finish up chapter 5. In the next four weeks, we're going to do a series on the Advent and really what we call the Christmas story. So we're going to make a little transition from the Sermon on the Mount. So will you join me as I pray and as we ask God to guide and direct our time? Lord, thank You so much for Your Word. I'm so glad we can be here and study the Word together. I thank You that we can worship You in song and in prayer and in your word. I pray that you just guide and direct our time, help our time to be honoring to you. I pray for my words that it will clearly articulate what the text is saying. And I pray that you will challenge us to really think about our life and what you are doing to us. So guide and direct us. Help us to learn. And we give you the praise and the glory for it. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, I'm entitled this Christian Character Transformation. And today we're going to look at three things. Truth and our speech. Relationships over retaliation. And love your enemies. Okay, are we good? Can we just go home? These are, this is a tough section of Scripture. Last week, Andy dealt with a tough section of Scripture. And if you didn't get the opportunity to hear that, please go online and listen to it. He handled that text greatly. And uh, so today we're going to look at these three things, and they will challenge us and challenge me. And you know, we only have one life to live. It's eternally crucial that we make the right decisions on how we're going to spend it. And God is into radical transformation. Every person in the Bible who followed God was radically transformed. People that made a commitment to follow God, God said, I'm going to radically transform you. To a great sinner, to a great saint. And we're all somewhere on that spectrum. When we come to know Christ, he starts transforming us. The Sermon on the Mount is all about transformation. It's interesting. Jesus was on a hill. I've been to Israel. They, they call it the Sermon on the Mount. There's not a lot of big mountains there. There's a lot of rolling hills. And I want you to get this perspective. Jesus sat down and taught them, and they stood. So let's do that. This No, no. Um, I always thought that would be interesting. 
Oftentimes when Jesus preached, they stood. So God wants to challenge us. Jesus wants to challenge us on our beliefs and our behaviors. And the Sermon on the Mount is all about transformation. I wrote this down. Just because you walked up and asked Christ to be in your life doesn't always mean you're saved. Salvation, there has to be evidence in your life that you're saved. Because God's in the business of changing people. Your life must reflect the love of Christ. Your life must show true sorrow over sin. Your life has to be passionate about knowing and loving Christ. You have to become more humble. And the list goes on. The Sermon on the Mount is about transformation. Jesus stated 60 times in the New Testament, follow me. That term means, I want you to be like Jesus. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus stated this to His disciples, if anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself. Wow, that's a challenge. Our selfish nature that we're born with is radically opposed to God and His nature. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to change you. You have to deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Let me give you a quick review so far, starting in Matthew 5. Let me just hit some highlights that we've talked about. We talked about humble faith. We talked about mourning over your sin. Stop being boastful and arrogant. Longing to do what is right. You need to be a peacemaker. You will be persecuted. The world is not your friend. You need to be light and salt in a dark world. You need to renew your mind. You need to remind yourself that God's in complete control of everything. And then we, transfer, we sort of transitioned halfway through chapter 5 to we need to look at our heart, especially in the areas of anger, murder, sexual immorality, marriage. We need to learn self-control over our selfish, sinful desires. And today, we're going to look at truth in our speech. We're going to look at give up on retaliation. And we're going to look at love your enemies. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 33. And we're going to look at three segments here. So 33 through 37, follow along with me as I read. In 33, he says, Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, or for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head for you cannot make one hair white or black. 
Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Let me give you a little background here. The Pharisees were the legalist of the time. The scribes would write down these new laws or new rules. And oftentimes they would take something from the Mosaic law and then they would add something to it. Six times in chapter 5, the statement, Jesus says, again, you have heard that what it was said and what you heard is wrong. So he's clarifying. He's going to reestablish biblical standards. So let me show you how I've diagrammed this out. Look at this next slide with me. The tradition was this. Again, you heard what it said. Then he wants to correct their understanding or to get back to truth, the biblical standard. So look at this. But I say to you, now before I go there, you know that word but? In Greek, we call it a stop sign. We, we do it too in English. It's comparing and contrasting. But in Greek, it says stop. Think about what you're doing and let's change course. So Jesus says, here's what you've heard. I'm going to clarify the truth. So he says, but you, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God. Then he calls us to action or a task. And he says, let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything else beyond that is evil. I love to diagram like this. I like to teach it in a class called hermeneutics. But it helps you really get into the text. So Jesus is going to reestablish what we call the biblical standard. So he says, but I say to you, he's contrasting their system with God's truth. And he's focusing on the heart issue, not legalism. And he's saying, I want to talk to you about oaths or swearing. The word could also be perjuring. Sort of a legal term, meaning you, you don't lie. And, and he's saying, you're making statements calling God to be your witness to the truth. And you're invoking a curse on God if you're not telling the truth. Wouldn't that be so cool? In this day and age, if somebody came up to you and lied and they died, you go, oh, he wasn't telling the truth. We'd live in a different world and we'd probably be in a whole lot of trouble. But Jesus is getting to the heart of the matter. He's saying to people, man, don't swear, swear by heaven. Don't swear by earth. Don't swear by the temple or the altar or by the Pharisees. Do you know, we, we do the same. Today, we hear this phrase, I'm telling you the truth. Oftentimes, I want to say to the person, so have you been lying to me for the last 15 minutes? Or they say, we say this, I swear by God, it's the truth. Jesus is saying, stop it. You know, we just went through an amazing political season of a bunch of people trying to tell us the truth. Not at all. I, I wish so much a politician would get up and say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to Congress and I'm going to work hard and I'm going to try and change things, but it's going to be hard. I don't know if it will happen or not. I'd probably vote for that guy or gal. I'm so tired of people giving false statements and not living up to it. 
Anyways, I better get off my political bandwagon. We better move on. God knows we are sinners. And God knows that the basic lying nature of man causes them to distrust each other. And it's a serious situation. You know, there will be at times what we call necessary oaths that are taken. For example, a marriage vow. Did a wedding a couple weeks ago. Told the young couple, you're making a covenant and a commitment to God and to all the people here till death do us part. I think that's one God honors. I think too, in our civil system, they ask you to tell the truth. You're supposed to tell the truth. Because a judge is trying to get to truth to, to, to put out a correct punishment and make a judgment based on truth. So Jesus is stating, live in truth. He's forbidding swearing. He's saying in your daily conversation, speak the truth. Do not justify your no. Where oftentimes we are compelled to explain no to people. People will come up to you and say, hey, you want to go do this? And in your mind, you're like, I really don't want to do it, but I don't have a good reason. And we make up a reason. I'm actually guilty on the other side of that coin. Oftentimes, somebody will say, hey, you want to go to lunch or dinner? And I'm like, yeah, I'm learning something, though. I should probably look at my calendar or talk to my wife first. So I tend to do the opposite. I tend to say yes too much instead of no. But Jesus is getting at something bigger. He's saying, I want you to be people of truth. I want your yes to be yes and your no to be no. And don't justify it. So Jesus is stating, don't say I'm telling the truth. Live in the realm of truth. State truth. You should never have to say that. Second thing, in our daily conversation, speak the truth. Always. It was interesting, I don't know if you knew this, Paul Roby was here in the first service. Our church helped him plant a church over 25 years ago in Draper, Utah. Paul and I talked after the service, and he brought up a couple other authors that talked about this subject. And I'm thinking, uh-oh, did I say something wrong? No, he said, one of the deepest challenges for us as believers is to live in the realm of truth and not to exaggerate. And I said, yeah, that is so true. Oftentimes we will exaggerate things. He's saying, Jesus is saying, I want you to live in the realm of truth. Then he gives an amazing warning. Hope you noticed it. It's at the very end. He says, let what you say simply be yes or yes. Anything more than this comes from evil. Wow. You need to catch those statements. I think I understand what Jesus is getting at. Jesus says something in Matthew, I mean, I'm sorry, in John 14, 6. You're all familiar with it. Jesus said to him, I'm the way, I'm the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Did you notice? He says, I'm the way, the truth. Jesus lived in the realm of truth. Satan lives in the realm of a lie. 
So the minute we start to lie, we jump realms. And Jesus is saying, I don't want you to do that anymore. I want you to live in the realm of truth. You and I have all met people. They state stuff truthfully, and we're highly attracted to people like that. Because you know where you stand. They just state the truth. They don't make things up. But Jesus gives this great warning. He's saying, don't do anything more than that because it's evil. See, when you've got to think about something of why you won't do it or why you will do it, you will have to create it. You're starting to lie to yourself and you're starting to lie to somebody else. So you got that one down? You ready to go for the second one? Jesus calls, point two, Christians to go the extra mile to have a relationship, not retaliation. Follow along with me in verse 38. You've heard that it's said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist the evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Again, let's look at this, how I've just organized this. Look at the next slide. I think it's coming. There it is. See, the tradition says you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And then he says, but I want to correct it. But I tell you, don't resist evildoers. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other also. Then he says, okay, this is, I want to clarify the tradition and then I want to give you an action. And he says, if somebody wants to take your shirt, give him his coat. If he forces you to go one mile, go two miles. I'm going to clarify what all that means in just a second. But I want to start with this tooth for a tooth and an eye for an eye. It's a very interesting statement. And I want to give you clarity with it by first going to 1 Peter chapter 2, 20 and 23, 20 through 23. So he says here, he says, For what credit is there if you sin and are punished and you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, that brings favor to God. For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example so that you should follow in His steps. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in His mouth. When He reviled, He did not revile in return. When he, was, when he was suffering, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus again is starting with, you've heard, and what you heard was wrong. But I tell you, he wants character transformation in this area of retaliation. In the Old Testament, let me give you the background on this, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. It's mentioned three times in the Bible, in the books of Exodus chapter 21 and 22, in Leviticus 24 and Deuteronomy 19. All of those situations are what we call part of the Mosaic Law. And it was given 
to help a judge or a magistrate or a king to dictate accurate punishment. It was never for you or I to take on and deal with the punishment when you were wrong. It was for a judge to take care of it. And the Old Testament set standards. And so the judge would say, I want to hear the truth. And then he would disseminate the justice. What, what, what was fair? And we have that system today. That's why we have judges. They want to know the truth so they can make an accurate judgment. See, the law was given to help individuals. God knew it would be utter chaos. You cannot have anarchy and preserve a society. So the intent of the Mosaic law was to control sin. In this case, the sin of anger, the sin of violence, and the sin of retaliation. So the law is good. It helps our society. And we might always agree what's happening, but there's good men and good women that are judges in our society trying to keep the society under control. So what is Jesus referring to? I want you to notice something. He's giving above and beyond. He's going the extra mile. He gives four cases. He first gives the one the slap on the cheek. Then he gives the loss of a shirt. Then he says, go the extra mile. And then he says, be generous. Let me clarify what those are. The first one is very clear. In the rabbinic tradition, the slap on the cheek, especially the right cheek, it was a slap from the back of the hand. It was called an insult. So he's not talking about a fight here, and he's not talking about defending yourself. He's saying, you can accept insults. People are not going to like you because you're a Christian. We've all been insulted some way or another. The older you are, you can relate. So he's talking about that, and he's saying, just turn the other cheek. Don't defend it. You know how we insult people now as we get our phone out and we text them something. I don't know if you recall this, in 2008, President Bush was in an Arab country and the reporter didn't like him. You know what the reporter did? He took off his shoes and threw them at him. Okay, now I lived in the Arab world for three years. The shoe is considered the dirtiest element on your body. That was considered a great insult. And you you've also might recall from movies or back if you've studied history, Remember, they would grab a pair of gloves and they would slap you in the face. This is the idea here. It's an insult. How do you handle insults? Jesus is saying, turn the other cheek. Don't worry about it. That's a tough concept to handle in our day and age. When people insult you, don't you want to defend yourself? He's saying, nah, just turn your other cheek. Go on with life. Second thing, he said, loss of a shirt. This is definitely not a text about suits, about suing, okay? Look at this. He's talking about a, suit, a shirt. And he says, if somebody wants to take it, give him your jacket as well. You notice he, Jesus keeps saying, we're going to go farther. Look at the third one, going an extra mile in 41. If anyone forces you to go on, on one mile, go with him too. Let me give you a little bit of Roman law. A Roman soldier 
could literally walk up to anybody, a Jew or a Gentile, and say, you're going to carry my backpack and my equipment for a mile. The law required it. And guess what? Jews hated Romans. They had taken over their country. And you'd have to pick up that backpack and you carried it a mile. Now, a mile in the Roman world was a thousand steps. You would literally count those out because you didn't want to go any farther because you didn't like this guy. And Jesus said, no, I want you to go another mile with that guy or gal. Then he says in 42, I want you to be generous. And he says, give to the one who asks and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. The thing is, you've got to look at the totality of Scripture. Love is always the limiting factor in what you give. One of the churches I worked at was down near the riverbed. We had a lot of homeless and a lot of people addicted to drugs. And a pastor there had taught all of us, you don't give them money. And I said, well, why not? You can help them out. And he goes, no, you might be putting crack cocaine up their nose. So our loves always has limits. Think about it. If you're a parent, you don't give your kid everything they want, right? Hopefully, right. If you do, we got to talk. We limit our love for their good. So what is Jesus getting at in this text? He's talking about overcome evil with good. This is the concept in the text. Let me give you the bigger picture. It's about going and doing far beyond what the culture would do. It's about a relationship. Every example is about doing more, which provides an opportunity for a relationship. Can you imagine if you were told to carry somebody's equipment, a Roman soldier's equipment, and you go a thousand steps and you finish and go, hey, number a thousand, you can drop your bag and move on. But you pick it back up and you say, I'm going to go another thousand with you. Don't you think that person would say, well, why are you doing that? See, the minute that person picked up the bag, who's in control? The person that picked up the bag. The one that went the extra mile. The one that gave the cloak. He gave more. It gives us an opportunity to create a relationship with somebody we don't like. Jesus always went the extra mile to have a relationship with the people He created. Romans 12, 21 says this, Do not overcome, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So Jesus is stating, overcome evil with good. Respond like Jesus. Follows His examples. And Jesus trusted the ultimate judge. So he's saying to us, be truthful in our speech. Then the second thing is, remind yourself to choose relationship over retaliation. That's a hard concept to get. Jesus did, and he got it. This will challenge you at your core. But God's in the business of transforming us. 
Let's look at principle number three. Jesus urges us to show ourselves distinct from the rest of the world. Look at 43 through 48. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good. And He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Don't even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I missed one line, I'm sorry. For if you love, in verse 46, those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even tax collectors do the same? Look at this chart again. The tradition, you have heard that it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I don't know the second stanza. I can't find that second stanza in the Bible. That was Jewish tradition. See, the Jews felt this way. They said, our neighbor is just people we like. Okay, so that's what tradition said. The second thing, but Jesus says, but I tell you, no, I want you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Then he says, a call to action, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Then he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let me clarify what he is doing here. The love your neighbor is one of the central themes in the whole Bible. You can't avoid it. But there was a lawyer in the New Testament that said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Okay, now the lawyer's coming from the perspective that my neighbor is just a Jew that I like. And Jesus is shaking up his world. And Jesus explains it through the story of the Good Samaritan, which most of you would recall. The Samaritan took care of somebody that was beaten up and bruised. And Jesus used that as a great example for the lawyer to understand. You've got to love people. So Jesus said, I want you to love all. Think about it. He loved the Samaritan, the woman at the well. First of all, you weren't even supposed to talk to a Samaritan, and especially not a woman. Jesus went the extra mile. He talked to the tax collector. He talked to the Roman soldier a number of times. So Jesus is stating two new aspects of love. He says, I want you to love your enemies. I want to pray for those who persecute you. But the problem is every human inclination is retaliation and revenge. And Jesus says, I want you to have a new approach. Jesus is condemning the disposition of hatred and revenge. He's saying, you've got to get rid of that. But oftentimes I hear this, and I, I would say this even to myself. I don't know if I have what it takes to love my enemy. Actually, you don't have what it takes. You can't do it on your own merit. Only the Holy Spirit indwelling you, guiding you, and changing your life can do this. It is a hard thing. But are we people that allow the Holy Spirit to change us? That's what Christ is saying. 
I want to transform you. And this is a tough one. All of them are tough. So here's what we need to understand. God's standard is radically different than human standards. So what does it mean to love our enemy? These days, often it's defined by emotions or feelings. To love in the Bible goes well beyond how I feel about something. It's a decision. Sometimes a decision has to do with doing the exact opposite of the way we feel. About a month ago, Eric was preaching on the Sermon on the Mountain, and it was he was dealing with um, going after people that need help. It was I- ironic. No, I think it was God-ordained. We had two homeless men show up to our church that Sunday. I had probably seven, eight people come up to me and say, hey, did you notice that person? You know, they don't smell very good. What are you going to do about it? I'm like, who, what? And finally I met the person. Then later on, I was blown away. Another staff member took one of those guys into the cafe, fed him, and spent the next hour talking to him. That staff member was not discriminating. That staff member was viewing him as another human being created by God. Jesus is getting at relationships. What will you do out of your comfort zone to love somebody that's mistreated you? Oftentimes, we've been mistreated, even judged wrongly. What are you going to do? We don't have what it takes, but God does. He's in the business of radically transforming us. So here's what we need to understand. It's a decision. I want to give you a quick illustration. I found this story quite a few years ago, and I think it's great. Once upon a time, a mean old mountaineer fell sick and died. There was no funeral directors back in those hills. And embalming had not yet been practiced. So the widow and the family dressed the body and placed it in a coffin. As the deceased was being carried along down through by the house, one of the pallbearers stumbled, causing the coffin to fall and crash into a gatepost. The knock somehow revived the old mountaineer who sat up and yelled at everyone in sight. The man lived one more year and was as mean as ever. Then he got sick and died again. Once more, the body was put in the coffin. The pallbearers lifted their burden. They shuffled by. And the long-suffering widow lifted up her head and said, as loud as she could, watch out for that gatepost. She didn't want, she didn't want him to be revived. Oftentimes, I think we feel like that. Somebody's done us wrong and we're like, Phew, can't wait till God gets you. Or I can't wait till you get your due. Jesus is saying, that's not your job. That's God's job. Most of us have known difficult people. And we have to learn how to deal with them. 
So we got to get to the why question. Why should we love our enemies? We should think about that often. It's not part of our nature. We generally don't like to like people we have problems with. Granted, but Jesus is saying, I want you to view it differently. And he gives us this amazing reason in verse 45. He says this, Jesus tells us why. Why we need to love our enemies so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. When we love our enemies, we demonstrate that we are God's children. We are prone, I mean, we prove to ourselves that we have a relationship with the living God when we love our enemies. Now, let me go way up here. You know, God created every human being and every human being that was born, guess what? Did not love God, but God loved them. That's us in this room. Before you were a Christian, you didn't love him. And God loved you. And he says, now you're part of my family. I want you to love every person that I have created. Well, that's a challenge to the core of our being. And see, then he goes on to say, the Father gives gifts of sun and rain to all people. And he says he bestows gifts to the righteous and unrighteous. Jesus cares for his creation. He feeds both the people that are against him and the people that are for him. So he's asking for a higher standard. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Do you realize the author of this book, his name is Matthew, and he was a tax collector who was hated by society. He got love. He understood what love meant. When Jesus says, I'm going to love you, he got it. We need to demonstrate love for each other. The Gentiles love the same way. Secular society loves the same way. How do we love differently? See, Jesus is saying this to us. Do you love indiscriminately the way God loves? Do you love without distinction the way God loves? Do you love based on kindness the way God does? The kind of people you love shows who you are following. Do you know the disciples and the 120 that were with Jesus? They loved people. Because they got the message. We need to love people. So Jesus closes with a really tough statement. He says, be perfect therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect. 1 Peter 1.15 helps us understand it. He says, but the one who has called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct. The word perfect is teleos in Greek. It's a unique word. It, means, it can also mean not only perfect, but it means mature. As you mature, start loving people. If you want to mature, love people. 
Don't judge and don't retaliate. Mature people love. They love their enemies. They love those people that hate God. That kind of love is mature and fully developed. So in conclusion, I want to give you a couple things to think on. God desires all of us to keep maturing. I don't care where you are in your process. We're all maturing. We don't get there. We keep maturing and God takes us home. And He's going to keep growing us up. God will radically change our lives to bring it in conformity to His will. God will take you home to be with Him one day and He wants you to live radically different. God wants our beliefs and behaviors to be transformed. This is how you know you're saved. So in this text, he starts out with, I want you to be truthful in your speech. That will impact the world around you. I want you not to focus on retaliation, but I want you to focus on relationships. Do whatever it takes to have a relationship with people. And then he challenges greatly to say, and I want you to love those that don't love you and don't love me. That's a huge challenge. Every person in the Bible who followed God was radically transformed. They learned how to love like God. They learned to be truthful all the time. They learned to allow God to deal with injustice. I want to finish with a quick story. This actually happened in a church. Um, small church, about 100 people. Eventually afforded, they were able to raise enough money to get a new sound system and a drum set. They got the system. A week later, it was all stolen. And the pastor gets up the next Sunday and he preaches, doesn't mention it at all. Some congregates were really frustrated that he didn't bring it up. So they approached him and talked to him. And they said, hey, our stuff was stolen. Your stuff was stolen. He goes, wait, 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 wait. Hold on. He said, I own nothing in this world. I don't own this building. I don't own anything in here. It's all God's. So the pastor thought about that conversation and realized, I'm not, ta- I'm not trained my congregation to realize they own nothing. It's all God. So he preached on that. And he brought up, at the end of his sermon, he said, you're a steward with whatever God has given you. Use it for His glory. And he says, concerning the drum system and the sound system, hey, they were God's. Somebody stole from God. Not from me, so I'm not worried about it. I'll let God take care of it. The next week, the drum set and the sound system all appeared. Which tells you something about the congregation. And he said, I'm going to leave God to deal with justice. Wow, isn't that tough to get? But if you think about it, that pastor's right on. He got it. And his congregation got it. So I want to leave you with a question this morning. What is one thing you need to change? to enhance the transformation process. It was interesting, right after that first service sermon, Paul and I were talking about um, truth is a tough thing. 
And he said he was challenged by reading this book. He said the author told him to be truthful for 24 hours straight. And if you can't be, don't say a word. And Paul said he took that on. And he goes, man, that was tough, Dave. Because oftentimes we tend to exaggerate just a little bit. So I want you to think about what is one thing you can do to enhance the transformation process? Will you join me as I pray? Lord, thank you so much for your word. Lord, I thank you for this sermon that Jesus preached to the masses. And they were astonished by his teaching. They were challenged to their core. I pray for us too that we... We will think about our speech. We'll think about what we say. I pray that we'll also think about how we don't retaliate. How, we, how do we create relationships? I pray also for us that we will love people that don't love us so that we can demonstrate to the world we are radically different and we're following the true living God, you. So I pray for us to do that. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, as I was, I'm going to lead us in a time of communion. And I was thinking about all of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus was saying, I want to transform you. I want to change you. And by the way, I'm going to pay for your sins. I'm going to help you in that transition process. And I want you to remember what I did for you. And so he gave us this cup called communion for us to take, to remind ourselves of what he did for us. I was telling Eloy, I get choked up with communion. Um, Because I think of him going to the cross, dying for your sins and mine. paid the ultimate price for our souls. We need to live for him. And every time you take it, think about, how am I living for you? Paul exhorts us to examine our lives and, say, and review our life and say, how am I living? Am I following you? I'm glad we take it often. I'm glad we think about what Christ did. So today I want to look at a quick passage as we take communion. It's in Luke 22. And in Luke 22, it says, The hour came, he was reclining at the table, and the apostles were with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. You know what's great about communion? We take it to remember he paid for our sins. But we also take it to look forward to the day that he's going to come back and take us home. Do you look forward to that day? Every time you take it, you need to be thinking, I'm going to take it with Jesus someday. 
It's going to be an amazing time. So I want to do something a little different. I want you to flip it over. We're going to take it together. So take the little chip out here. And he said, this is my body. Broken for you and for me. He says, do this in remembrance. So let's take it and eat it together. Then he took the cup and he opened it up and he said, this is the new covenant of my blood. It was a radically new covenant. The old covenant meant you had to have an animal pay for your sins. Jesus said, that's not going to happen again. He paid for our sins and it's a brand new covenant and we need to remember that his blood paid for us. So I want us to take it together and then I'll pray. So let's take. Jesus, we thank you for going to the cross and paying the ultimate price for our souls. Help us to never forget it. Not only did you pay the price to save us so we can have a relationship with the living God, He paid the price to transform us, to be a follower of Him, to live in the realm of love, to care about people and to live in the realm of truth. Help us, Lord, to be reminded of what You did for us daily until You take us home. And we'll give You the praise and the glory for it in Your precious name. Join us as we sing this song.